Cam is back here once again with an MVP. <laughs> God, Mark Agushowitz is with us here tonight <laughs> of, you know, once again, of the Screen Forum and Underexposed Cinematic Treasures. We were talking about just different film guys, we filmmakers we could do at one point or another. And this is like Peter Ware was like the one that stood out of the ones he listed. And I was like, well, fuck. He's he's on my list, but probably not for another year and a half. So I might as well let's do it now. I want I want more collaborations this year, and so I'm glad we did because again, he's one who many people are familiar with. Even if you haven't seen all this stuff, like there's no way anyone hasn't seen at least three of his movies. You know, like it's just such so common what he's got. He's had 14 films. He's attributed to being one of the many majors in the Australian form of new wave cinema. And he's also done uh, five short films and even two two documentaries. So, uh, six Oscar nominations. Being, oh, wonderful! I'm glad you dug that up. Um, so, uh, how would you describe his uh, style, and how does he complement your your taste in film, uh, Mark? He probably informed my taste in film because of how I discovered it. Uh, as a filmmaker, <laughs> um, I'm a I'm a character guy. I I think character is the most important thing in a movie. Uh, same thing with a book. And so, I feel like sometimes when I watch Peter Weir as a filmmaker, he is more interested in who these characters are, what they're about, how realistically they would react to things, and uh, then the plot. You know, the first movie I ever experienced by him was Witness, and it's about a little boy who witnesses a murder, but bam, no, it's not. It's about these two two people from different cultures kind of coming together and falling in love, even though they can never be together. He has movies and, about identity, basically, especially with, yeah. yeah. And there's some of his movies where I've been like, you know, that's interesting. I don't 100% love, but I don't regret watching like i've seen you're living dangerously actually three different times all just throughout my life it's just one of those it's a very intriguing story it's just it's not one that really like keeps my attention but it's got some very intriguing material in it and i think like you said i mean every once in a while i'll see like you were talking before we started that some people shit on green bug i've seen witnesses kind of the popular green card yeah green green card not but yeah green green card and i've seen people even uh just shit on witness once in a while. And I think he's just, he, he's a character study filmmaker and that's like, that makes for any kind of good filmmaker, but he is kind of interesting in that he can kind of appeal to those who want a Peter Jackson or Steven Spielberg type epic, but he can also kind of appeal to people who are kind of more into like John Siles or Jane Campion and especially even Michael Cimino or Francis Ford Coppola, just people who are known for just doing expensive, expensive, you know, epics that have dramatically rewarding material to study well with uh peter weir i mean his his films always feel incredibly personal no matter how big they get because even master commander which has got these big you know battles with the you know the ships and their cannons and all that it's still a very very personal uh, film. And I feel like, you know, the more personal the filmmaker gets, the more, the better their films are. I think that's why Steven Spielberg is who Steven Spielberg is. And I think that's why E.T. is the movie E.T. is because E.T. is a movie that's got, you know, aliens and spaceships and, you know, it's a, a, child, you know? <laughs> well, it's got a child's adventure and, uh, 
uh, and, uh, you know, this little uh, puppety alien running around. But it's also a very, it feels like a very personal story. Spielberg made a very personal he always story. Does. I mean, there's a reason he's doing a movie about, based on the life of his father, you know, his like being estranged and uh, feeling abandoned to some degree. And I mean, yeah. Yes, sorry, best, yeah. And I feel like the best filmmakers do that. I think the filmmakers that I love are always doing that. If you want, like, if you ask me who my favorite filmmaker is, I'm going to tell you Peter Weir. If you ask me who my second favorite filmmaker is, I'm going to tell you David Cronenberg. <clears throat> and uh, Cronenberg came to me because of The Fly, which is a story that you at first think is about a guy who's turning into a fly and it's gross and it's disgusting and you know it's got all that but no it's not it's this real human character drama where the woman is actually the main character as she has to witness this person that she loved you know go through this disease and so mm -hmm. it's got this like really very commercial kind of sci-fi story but it's also a very personal story underneath and I think that if you know when we talk about Peter Weir you know I think all of his movies do that. I got to tell you personally, there's only one movie that Peter Weir has uh, ever made that I didn't like. And it's very rare to say that about a filmmaker. How many filmmakers can you say their whole library, they only got one movie that you didn't like. And then if I told you what that movie was, you would say I was crazy because everybody in the world would say I was no, crazy. This is where <laughs> I don't like how we get into this. Cause everyone but, acts like you have to love everything in the top 250. It's like, Bullshit. There's yeah, going to be some animated or silent films or even just I, 70s movie that did not date well. <laughs> I watch Peter Weir movies and uh, there's, it they, they feels like there's personal elements there. The characters feel very personal. They feel very strong. Um, and I feel that for like almost every one of his movies, the only movie, just because people are probably now wondering, is I can't stand Picnic and Hanging Rock. I find it incredibly <laughs> boring and I've given it three chances. People will tell me it's a masterpiece. I'm crazy. They would, they're thinking I was going to say Green Card, which is a movie I, I, I think is totally misunderstood. Um, but yeah, I just feel like, you know, his movies, they've got these really interesting plots and stories that are being told, but it's the inner struggles and the inner stories that really come through. And he, I feel like he does it better than anybody else. He really gives us these character stories better than anybody else because it feels like that's the most important thing in the story. No matter if you're surrounded by ships firing cannon at e cannons at each other or a little boy witnessing a murder <laughs> um, or these guys crossing a desert, um, you know, or a small town that's, you know, uh, using car crashes to finance their economy or whatever it is. It's it's the characters. Well, I'm and, glad you brought that up. I did see the cars that ate Paris, I want to say, probably four years ago on Turner Classic Movies on their retro night every Friday mm -hmm. they do. And that was very intriguing and went, I would have never even guessed he would have done it because, you know, there's so many other great filmmakers who just always evolve. And sometimes you got to check twice to realize, Oh, that, that makes sense why they did that. I totally understand even without seeing the special features, why they did that, why this is a Roger Donaldson movie, why this is a Bruce Beresford or mm -hmm. uh, who's another great guy, Philip Noyce, you know, <laughs> this is like, yeah, this is a suspenseful political drama. Of course it's a Philip Noyce movie. Um, but yeah, Cars That Ate Paris was interesting. Is like, yeah, when I saw that, it was a, or I was already going to check it out because it's like, oh, Peter Weir. I love Peter Weir. But then I, I see it, and I was like, interesting. Mm -hmm. And totally appreciate it. So, yes, I've heard many talk about Picnic at Hanging Rock. 
And I just found out about the last wave. I don't know how this flew over me. I've never seen it. I want to see it. But uh, the Cars That Ate Paris that you referenced is interesting because it's like, I don't think I've ever seen a sci-fi fantasy movie that really, truly tears apart figure of speech and then, you know, jokes about the car industry. <laughs> well, it's an interesting movie because you can really feel the dire a director feeling his way. It was his first feature. And there are some things in it that don't necessarily work. But overall, <clears throat> for a first-time filmmaker with a very low budget, he fills it with a lot of really interesting moments and a really lot of really interesting um, themes. And it's definitely w worth checking out, but you got to make sure you write, but you got to make sure you watch the right version because Ooh, okay. there's as, a few different as, versions. Yeah. As I was preparing for uh, talking to you, um, I listened to I listened to some other people talking about the cars that ate Paris, and it's so obvious that they watched the American release, which was cut up pretty bad. I'm not sure which version I saw. I might have been a Criterion Collection thing. Yeah, um, I don't know if it had a Criterion. It might have. The version that I have is on DVD, which uh, has got a transfer that he supervised. So I know that it's the, the version they want you to see. And I had no problem understanding it. And I'll sit there and listen to these people talk about uh, the film on their podcast. And they're like, I didn't understand this. I didn't understand this. And I'm like, well, I, I got it. Um, but that's because in America, they, they cut it up really badly to the point where there's a great interview on the DVD where Peter Weir talks about a guy approaching him and saying, you know, uh, you don't know who I am, but I know who you are. And Peter Weir's <laughs> like, who, I, who are you? And he's like, well, I'm the guy who destroyed the cars that made Paris when they made me edit it for American release. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just make sure that people need to, when they watch it, make sure that uh, they watch the right one. And they also have to understand that uh, there's some stuff in it that if you're not Australian, you may not fully understand because he comes from a different place. And so mm -hmm. he's going to be, his movies are going to be taking on themes that might directly relate to Australia. Like it opens with a kind of a take on a commercial. And I know a lot of people are like, what was that? And it's like, well, if you lived in Australia, you'd get it because there's a take on a popular commercial he was kind of parodying. Right. And so it's definitely an interesting uh, movie, but yeah, you got to make sure you watch the right one. It's got some interesting performances. It's, it was just very inspired and it's kind of crazy at times. Yeah. But I mean, compared to other people who where you're just like, they didn't know what they were doing, nothing personal, but it was like, uh, you basically, you, you definitely feel a movie, which is having to take a lot of compromises, but at least you're kind of cool with it experimenting and its ideas stand out just like any good, you know, beginning sci-fi or horror movie. And that's kind of just all that matters. And I mean, compared to other people who are just like, Hey, you know, I, I know this got you on the map, but Oh man, I don't like it. <laughs> and, and so I have not yeah. seen picnic at hanging rock. I still have not seen green card and I have not seen fearless, even though I know entirely what fearless is about. So well, here's the thing. Victim, you know. Yeah, here's the thing. Um, you'll probably want to see Picnic and Hanging Rock. I didn't like it. I find it very boring. It it has no conclusions in the end. Uh, you know, it's about these girls who go missing, and you never get any. Sounds answers. like a party. 
Uh, but he does that intentionally. <laughs> I thought it was very slow. Um, green card, I think you should give it a, a chance. I, I can get into that in a second. Totally. Um, and uh, Fearless is just amazing. It is uh, some of the best directing uh, Peter Weir has ever done. Uh, Jeff Bridges is amazing. And Rosie Perez will have to pray to whatever God she believes in that she'll ever give a better performance than she gives in this film because she is She's so good girl. and fearless. Excuse me? She's a cool gal, but yeah. I... She is absolutely amazing. And there's one moment in, uh, in Fearless. Um, it's, uh, they, they, it, people who've seen it will know what I'm talking about. The, they, they, uh, they have the YouTube song playing over it and everything. And basically Rosie Perez's character feels guilty for her son's death because her her kid died in the plane crash and she kind of blames herself for it and jeff bridges you know sets up the situation to prove that there's nothing she could have done that her son she was not to blame for her son everybody talks wildly about this scene it's it's i'm trying to be since you haven't seen it i'm trying to be spoiler free as i'm talking about i it, know there is some tragedies in it i know it is a very inspiring <laughs> but, and but as uh, much as people love that but as much as people love that scene, because it's a really impactful, powerful scene, there's another scene in a mall where with Rosie Perez just looking at this woman and her child. And it's a very subtle scene. And Rosie Perez plays it off so well. It's so powerful. And it's so moving. And, you know, all of Fearless, though, I mean, it's one of those films that got taken down from bad timing. Because it came out right before Schindler's List. Uh, yeah, that and, you know, kind of like the Fisher King, which is just so wild because, you know, here, you know, where his work with both Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges, it's interesting mm -hmm. how like these movies were just too personal. They're just very hard to market, you know, and they're found endlessly on occasional movie channel screenings. And you're just like, God damn, cinema yeah. is really good, but underseen. Yeah, it's just... With Fearless, I mean, it opens in this really extraordinary way because uh, it's it's a movie. Okay, this is it's a perfect example of a movie where I'll I say you know Peter Weir is not as interested in in plot as he is in character because it opens in the aftermath of the plane crash. They're walking through cornfields. The plane crash has already happened, and this scene is all about Jeff Bridges. We get. It takes a while before you get to see the, uh, the the full shot of the plane crash because that's not what it's about. And we don't actually see the plane crash to the end of the movie. We see little pieces and flashback and stuff like that. But it's it's not about the plane crash. It's about how the plane crash affected these two people. Um, and yeah. it's really, really amazing. It's weird because... Let me let me put it this way. The way that I came to be introduced to Peter Weir, I know generally on these shows, you'll ask people, well, how did you get your introduction? I didn't see a lot of movies growing up. My parents. Really? Yeah, no, they didn't like uh, they didn't spend money. And so we didn't go to a lot of movies. And then my parents were divorced and me and my father had nothing in common. So <laughs> it would be like I go spend the weekends with him because my father was really big into sports and I, I really wasn't. And so. I spend the weekends with him and be like, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. You want to go to a movie? And we go to the movies. And my father was more interested in the Charles Bronson films and the uh, Clint Eastwood movies. Okay. And I mean, Classic Clint Eastwood, stuff, guys. 
Yeah, you know, Clint Eastwood's gone on to do some really great stuff, but most of the stuff at that time that was coming out, it was just, you know... Who will he shoot at the end of this scene? Yeah, it was, just, <laughs> it, it was one action scene after another, and it was basically, you know, the popcorn kind of movie where you didn't really think when you went and watched a movie. You really, you just sat back and had a good time. And I got no problem with that. I love those movies now. I just watched Charles Bronson's Death Hunt about a month ago, enjoyed it, loved it. Um, <laughs> I love those kinds of movies too. But then one week- For growing we up, have, it's gotta be kind of frustrating because as a kid, you kind of want something that's challenging, intriguing, resonates no, with well, you. As, as a kid, I was perfectly happy going to see the Goonies and stuff, you know, the stuff that just had action and 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 this. How about when you got to a teen where you're just now you want something more besides watch Star Wars or the same Disney I, movie again? You know, again. It, it it didn't necessarily bother me. I just, you know, I was enjoying the movies. That's okay. all that was mattered. No, no, it's I, cool. It's cool I know movie. how I, yeah, people are. Everybody's different, but to me, I was enjoying these movies. I didn't really say anything special about it. Movies were movies. They were just a place to go waste two hours and have a good time. There's no difference between going to a movie and maybe going bowling. You had a good time and then uh, one week uh we're like what do you want to go see i don't know there's this movie witness uh, it looks good it's about a kid who witnesses a murder and so and it stars harrison ford he's indiana jones and he's uh you know he's uh han solo so that's it's what be- i love too he has such <laughs> unrecognizable roles from actors at the beginning of their careers you know and leading men uh rising kid actors uh underutilized actresses who are now you know award-winning a-listers you know it's just like uh you know calipoli and you're living dangerously those are two early you know not so action-based you know dramas for then popular well, he, mel gibson and linda he, hunt got some awards from he challenges his actors by putting them in roles that they that you wouldn't expect them in you know and it when we get into, if we talk about Mosquito Coast, you'll see, you'll know exactly why. Oh, really? I, love I was, I'm Mosquito. glad I saw it two years ago because I was yeah. like, I've been meaning to watch it. It's just never on, or the DVD's out of stock, and it was just like, I, I'm gonna find this one way or the other. And it's like, I'm glad it did because right. I'm told it's the darkest well, role Harrison has ever played. Yeah, well, it, and it was, but with the uh, with the witness thing, I'm thinking to myself. You know, Han Solo, Indiana Jones. This is just going to be about a guy who he has to protect a, a little boy who's a witness. There's going to be car chases. There's going to be gunfights. It's going to be exciting. And we went and we saw it. And I'd never seen a movie like this before. I, it, it was not that at all. It starts with the it's first of all, it starts with a funeral. It's like 15, 20 minutes before we even get to the to the point where uh, Harrison Ford comes into the comes into the movie so it's like 15 minutes before the murder or something like that mm-hmm. and uh and then it's like okay this is cool you know i didn't know who danny glover was at the time i didn't discover yeah, danny he's glover. the main assassin and uh freaking uh Lucas yeah. Hosh. you see him in just about everything now guest starring on tv big movies like inception but he's like that he will always be a kid from witness just grown up who's yeah no a great actor. It, it's yeah that's lucas haas I, I i didn't know who i said i didn't know who danny glover was at this time because <laughs> danny glover hadn't really done a lot at this at this point yeah, I didn't, just did, a bit part i discovered him kind of a couple of months later when he came out in the color purple uh, and then of course we had lethal weapon so with me it was kind of like this is a harrison ford movie it's gonna have a lot of action and then i walked out of it and i just didn't know what to think of it and i went home and i was talking to my grandfather about it and i started to realize what movies could really do 
here's an action movie that could have just been taken as an action movie, but no, we got to know who these characters were. We got to know about cultures. Well, wait, they, they don't get together in the end. What's this about? An Amish you know? <laughs> community. We've never really seen something like it, that before. And... It was a movie that really made you think. Yeah. And and then when I was talking to my grandfather, we started talking about one particular scene. And it's probably one of my favorite scenes in movie history now because of this. But it's the <laughs> scene where the bullies come into play. Yeah. Viggo Mortensen and the yeah, unknown and the guy from uh Carl from Die Hard. <laughs> like yeah, one so of his the, first roles. The uh yeah, but the bullies come in because uh, Viggo Mortensen and uh, and and uh, Alexander Alexander U- Goodenough, who it was. Yeah, um, they. That, 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 that's, that's Carl from Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they're they're playing Amish characters, and mm-hmm. so there's this scene where you know it's towards the end of the movie. We're thinking Harrison Ford, Kelly McGillis might get together. Harrison Ford might even be able to live with the Amish because he's starting to get to know them. And <laughs> so the scene comes up, and uh, these these bullies are bullying the the Amish, and um, the one character, Eli, the grandfather, you know, uh, stops Book, who's played by Harrison Ford, because Book's getting up, he's going to do something about it, and Eli yeah. says. Uh, it's not our way and Harrison Ford goes but it's mine and he goes up and he proceeds to beat the crap out of the guy and that that to me you know in any other movie would have action scene where we root it would have been heavy-handed or felt like a last-minute rewrite but fortunately it sets enough with the brutal opening murder and then just him getting to understand everyone you're like okay he's not gonna play by any rules he's going into a town he's not familiar with or comfortable in yeah, well, and, and it could play as just that, too. In an Abronson movie, it might play as something like that. But here, right. here it's got two other pieces of importance that <laughs> yeah. you don't realize. And one is, it's how they find out where Harrison Ford is. But there's also the element of, oh, he's not he's not going to be able to live with the Amish. He's not going to ever be able to uh, live in their ways. He can He can care about them. He can respect them. He can even love them. But he cannot be with them. He is going to have to leave. He can't that get attached, scene, even though yeah, he is. Yeah, I mean, the, but the scene isn't about brutality. It isn't about you know watching Harrison Ford beat up some people and having us go, yeah. It's about it's something deeper. There's so much more going on there. And I started to realize, oh my god, that movies could really. Do, this was when I started to realize what movies could actually do. And I they started watching shocking or special effects epics. They can be. Yeah, they, they, they can be meaningful. There can be a lot more depth to them. And so I just started watching movies very differently after uh, watching uh, Witness. And so I started, um, as I started kind of, you know, checking out more stuff by Peter Weir because he came out the following year with Mosquito Coast, which, you know, was a movie that uh, a lot of people to Helen Mirren and (laughs) yeah. And a lot of people didn't seem to like that movie for some reason. And I personally think, and here we go, a lot of people are going to hate me now, but I think it's because it forces you to look at a side of yourself that you might not like. And Paul Schrader was used to this, you know, here he is coming off of, you know, Martin Scorsese movies like Taxi Driver and Last Temptation of Christ. And, He's doing another study showing how anyone can break or contradict yeah. their principles at any minute. And it's a Sierra Madre type plot. It was an interesting movie for me because 
first of all, I know so many people who, when they talk about politicians and all that, they'd be like, oh, they suck. They don't know what they're doing. They can't, because everybody thinks they can do better. And Ali Fox is that kind of character where he looks at America yeah. and he thinks he can do better. And then he goes to do better. And he, he, there's all sorts of problems and this, that come up. And he starts to get to him and he starts to lose it. And look, up until a week ago, people would ask me what my favorite Peter Ware movie was. And I would always kind of <laughs> go back to Witness. And I didn't know if it was because it was the first movie that I saw by him. And it was the movie that affected me so much because it really taught me what movies could do. But as I was watching Mosquito Coast again, I started to realize this might be his best movie. I don't care what people say, because you can really sense two master artists at work. One, Peter Weir, who is basically taking some real risks, taking a person who's known for being a hero and making him a bad, uh, an anti-hero, um, making us as uh, a people look at our deep inside ourselves to a part of ourselves who might that we might not like. Yeah. Um, he's telling we don't it want all to confront or correct. We just kind of he, he's telling it all from River Phoenix's point of view. So Harrison Ford's not even necessarily the main character. They're giving yeah. it to some kid. And then the other master we're seeing at work is Harrison Ford, who really seems to be enjoying himself, but this is by far his best performance. He truly disappears into it. He's not, he at the time wasn't scared to say, yes, I know people want to see me as Indiana Jones. They want to see me as Han Solo. They want to see me as a hero. He really took this opportunity to prove what he could do. And he's so much fun to watch uh, while watching this movie. And he's effective. He proves why uh, he, at the time, was one of our best actors. You know, I feel like later in his career, maybe he started to kind of waver a little, but... It just um, couldn't get away from, you've got to run around saying, my wife, my family, and he's like... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's great in The Fugitive, too. So, yeah. but, uh, and, and he still gives us some good performances. Uh, he was in that... Uh, uh, that baseball movie, uh, 41, uh, he's good in that. And uh, yeah, 42 was really good. Um, uh, 42, the, the, that's the name of it. And, uh, but, uh, for me, I don't think he'll ever, like I said about Rosie Perez and fearless, I don't think he'll ever give a Harrison Ford, will ever give a better performance than a uh, mosquito coast, which is just, yeah. I saw if you watch an Apple TV miniseries and I'm like, not gonna even bother nothing personal it's not even uh not liking the main actor who's actually the nephew of the author on which this book is the movie is based upon i'm like you just can't get any better than this movie it's just from from what i've read of it it's nothing like the story's nothing like what okay uh, so crisis averted (laughs) yeah so i i don't know i mean i personally don't like to judge anything till i've seen it there's too many movies that are like favorites of mine oh yeah i I don't do trailers or anything (laughs) but it was one of those where it's like this movie is so good at socially and mentally challenging me that why even try and recreate it it's just not gonna get it's raised the bar so high it's too good for its own good it's yeah but you got to be careful because i've seen movies um i've reviewed i've reviewed movies on my website under exposed cinematic treasures that started out as i don't want to see that look that looks terrible oh god and one of which was uh uh Cuaron did uh a little princess and i literally got dragged to that movie i did not want to see that movie (laughs) and that it's one of my favorite movies it is so well done it is so fantastic and so i've learned never to judge anything until you've seen it but there is the element of yeah but i got these five movies i want to watch 
I'm going to watch, you know, you are going to pick and choose which ones you decide you to watch. You have to, but... And I don't really have a desire to see that redo of Mosquito Coast either. But if it's on one day, I might give it a shot and see what it is. And I'll go into it with an open mind. I just... To me, when I watch, I mean, the score uh, is fantastic in that movie. Um, Helen Mirren's really great. Um, even in her little bit part. Uh, By the way, they're reuniting on that uh, Yellowstone prequel spinoff. Oh, <laughs> sure. yeah. Coincidental. It took me a moment to put that again. I'm like, wait, you're thinking of a movie yeah. here? Oh, it's the Mosquito um, then uh, even uh, Martha Plimpton, who's got a very small role. Is yeah, really years before being it. the sitcom go-to gal and like a few, like almost five years before uh uh, what's it got parenthood yeah so it's like shit she yeah no the, and dynamite cast and yeah and 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 she was in that other movie where she played opposite river phoenix where she's really really great oh, uh, the sydney lament movie running on empty yes yes and i i was fortunate enough to even see that around i want to say 2017 on turner classics i was like great there's another sydney lament movie i've been meaning to see and i had finally yeah. found but it was just like Man, River is so, a great actor. So now, I mean, literally, Mosquito Coast was, I think, the second movie by Peter Ware that I had seen. And so now I'm like caught and I, he's just totally changed my life. But I haven't put together uh, his name, Peter Weir, yet, interestingly enough. You'd so I just, River just seen these really movies, even playing uh, young Indiana Jones. And you're like, but wait, who is this yeah. weird guy? He's the witness guy. I didn't know. <laughs> Two different movies. <laughs> yeah. It, I at, at that time I was just discovering movies and you kind of I didn't really put together the filmmaker aspect of it although I was recommending recognizing the uh, the actors and of course I knew Steven Spielberg and people like that um, but uh, I don't know if you saw Gallipoli but I had a friend um, she's yeah. she was working in the AV she's department at a yeah, she was working. I have a friend. She was working in the AV department in the library at my college at the time, and she was had a big crush on Mel Gibson. Told me I had to watch Gallipoli, <laughs> and to this day, I think that the worst thing about Gallipoli is the last ten minutes is so powerful that you kind of forget the rest of the movie, and you'll be watching the rest of the movie going, "Wow, this is a great movie," but that last ten minutes, and I'd never experienced a closing shot like the closing shot of Gallipoli. And I mean, you yeah. basically got the main character. I'm going to spoil this for everyone, but he is killed in the final shot and they freeze frame on him being killed. It's and I've never seen like, anything like that. It was kind of like the deer hunter where people were showing is like, obviously we're not going to be just, you know, none of these are ever going to end happy, but at the same time, you know, we're going to show how precious life is growing up well, as a kid. And uh, you know, in the another one of Another one of my favorite things when it comes to Peter Weir is he always ends his movies in that kind of this is how it would really end kind of thing. You, you, know? you blur away, you focus on and then slowly fade. And it doesn't feel like a well, cheat. It doesn't feel like he's catering to any formula. He's just he, trying to go for a very atypical, <laughs> realistic picture. His, he's being very real. You know, at the end of uh, Witness, uh, Kelly McGillis and Harrison Ford can't be together because it just wouldn't work. In any other director's hands, they'd probably end up the together. The producer and... would have said, you will change that. And he's like, no, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. And, I and got the a great start. Let and then you finish. walk out of the movie going, oh, I like the movie, but they're not going to be together in a week. You know? No. And it's, it's the same thing in Gallipoli. Who who kills off their main character in that, in, you know, in the, in, 
in the in the final shot. Um, the only ending that feels very un Peter Weir to me is uh, of all of his movies would be The Year Living Dangerously because at the end of the movie, you know, Scorny Weaver and uh, Mel Gibson, you know, they get together on the plane. Right. They're both reporters. Um, got in very close. And yeah. Like, no, she's and, an embassy officer. My bad. But anyway. Yeah, and 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 so that one feels a little fabricated to me. Although I have a I have a theory on it, because um, I, I it's fabricated, I was, but they kind of make it work because they want to. Well, they don't say the typical things like "Oh, embrace me now." That's kind of more. Well, I mean, I I almost took it. Uh, I was thinking about this last time I watched it, where um, Linda Hunt uh, great, plays Billy Kwan. Great. Great actress. And she's absolutely fantastic. And for people who don't know, she's playing a male role and she's absolutely fantastic. She won the Oscar for it. And uh, Mel Gibson could not do now, you know, without someone being offended. Yeah. 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 And uh, Mel Gibson is um, plays a reporter. He goes to a war torn country. Um, I'm not political. So that all that stuff kind of goes over my head. It's probably why it being more of a character oriented kind of director with Peter Weir I can enjoy these kinds of movies and you know he falls in love with Sigourney Weaver and she what gives it? him a scoop and he <laughs> she gives him a scoop not to for him to run with but because she wants him to be safe uh and it's it's about to be a dangerous situation and he wants to run with it and it's all the stuff going on and then they come together in the end and I started thinking about this this movie and Bill, Billy Kwan the the Linda Hunt character I started thinking I wonder if that ending is appropriate because this isn't Mel Gibson's movie. It's not his story. It's the Billy Kwan character story because he's the one doing the narration. He's right. the one who pretty much go, you know, puts everything, moves everything forward. He introduces the two of them. He gets uh, Mel Gibson, you know, introduces him to the right people so he can tell his stories. And so as much as we're like, ah, oh, Mel Gibson's the main character, maybe it was Billy Kwan who was the main character. Because he also, we see a lot more through his eyes than we see through Mel Gibson's eyes. Because he's got that woman with the sick kid who then dies. And, he, you know, uh, he, Billy was this character who uh, really looked up to the politician and then all of a sudden is uh against the politician you know because yeah. the politician has, de has <laughs> deceived them <laughs> and 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 then and then of course you know so i feel like it's more his story of course he dies about 15 minutes before the end of the story and i started thinking about that and i started thinking to myself yeah but he may die but if he were telling the story i think this is how it would end you know, that, and Mel Gibson would still go after the story, which he does, and then he gets hurt, and then he's trying to get the, his his tapes to the plane, but they get taken away, and he has to choose to say, okay, take him, I'm going to go to the girl. And that just feels like if this movie were to end the way Billy Kwan, the character, wanted to end, this is the ending we're getting, and maybe it does work uh, in a certain way. So true, because, like, he he sets the tone and the mood and the material all up to where you're accepting really of where it's going to go. Cause there's just so many other movies, which unfortunately just go through numerous rewrites and you're just mm -hmm. not sure what was truly going on in that noggin of theirs. There's just too many cooks, too many producers making changes. And fortunately enough, he must've just been just on budget and on time, say for his last movie and just been able to just again, bring everyone together and, or not, kill anyone giving notes you know so no one was tempted to even take it away from him to begin with you know he 
anyone looking at his productions and the giant set pieces would already probably associate him with like maybe a David Lean, well, Lawrence of Arabia or Gunga Din. But look I at mean, look at Master and Commander. Okay, here's uh, Master and Commander. Yes. It, it's it's a story that takes place on the high seas. Any other director would give you all these swashbuckling moments. Anyone was going to fund that. Russell Crowe signed me up. But yeah, but I mean, you're expecting you know sword fights and the guy you know stabbing the sail with the with a knife and riding it down and you know all that kind of stuff. And we get some really great action scenes, but it's all very realistic. It's it's got. Uh, it's it's all very real involved like you would think oh my god if this were to happen in real life this is the way it would go down and then the movie ultimately just becomes about characters the stuff with uh what's his name um who played the friend of russell crowe paul bettany is absolutely fantastic yeah. yeah he's absolutely fantastic and then there's this story about this little boy uh this young kid um who's on the ship who has to have his arm removed and um if i may backtrack so this movie was as much a part of my life. Oh. I saw Dead Poet Society at two different high schools growing up. And, you know, oh. Witness was on Oxygen all the time. So obviously I would always see parts of that one. And Truman Show was the first one I saw. I'm age 12. My mother's getting more experimental, getting more movies from the video store that are good set pieces. And I'm like, holy How fuck. good was that movie? You want to talk about a director knowing how to recognize and use his actor. People shit on it now, but I'm like, it's a good <sighs> it's goddamn fantastic. movie. And Carrie is just fantastic. And uh, Natasha McElhone, Mecca- you, you've uh, seen her in everything now, you know, Disney mm-hmm. Survivor, Californication, the first, the new Halo show she's great on. But I'm, I'm always associate this and Ronan with like, that's where I was like, Natasha McElhone the actress everyone mm-hmm. should look out for. And I was like, I, Ed Harris as a bad guy who thinks he's those, doing something good. Those uh, those two performances, Jim Carrey and Ed Harris, just blew me away because there was such With humanity. TV, man. And well, how it, it, it's, it's pretentious. It's, and I think that's why I never even... I'll even I'll probably say that's probably why I never gave a fuck about reality TV, unless it was like a funny game show or something. Because right. it's like, I see how staged and... And how unreal it is morbid <laughs> and yeah it's not real and i mean i was on an episode of cheaters for fuck's sake so yeah no i i know it's all bullshit but um so yeah i uh he launches all those actors to the next wave you're taking them more seriously i mean his final movie the way back was one of the final movies i saw with my grandma before she unfortunately passed mm-hmm. away from uh bone cancer and but it was one of those is like, we thought about it for days. It's such a simple concept. Once again, he's working with Ed Harris. You got Jim Sturgis, who's kind of- was What's her, what's her name? How do you, I don't know how you pronounce Sa- her name. Sasha Ronan, the first thing oh, I ever fantastic. saw her in. I'm like, she's fantastic. what's she going to do next? And she's great. Mark Strong has a brief role. But I was like, here's what would happen if Polish POWs you know, escaped and they had nothing but the desert and their dreams. And it was like, what a hell of a movie. That's not easy to do. And- he- we think about pl- it for days. He takes plots that could very easily be taken into, turned into adventure movies. And he says in this, I'm going to tell you it with, with real humanity, real people, real, they're not characters. They're, 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 they're people that we can relate to. Um, they have the stories. Yeah. They're, it's, it's incredible. It could be this incredible story about them having to travel 4,000 miles, wherever it is to freedom across deserts and, and mountains and stuff like that. But he adds real humanity to them and he makes them into people that we really truly 
care about, and it's every single one of his movies, including Green Card. I dare people to challenge Green Card on me because even Green Card's ending. I think that Green Card, I understand, you know, there are some moments in Green Card where it's like, ah, oh, this is kind of a rom-com, but it's not. Everything about it feels real. The way it's shot feels real. The moments, the way it ends with uh, when they when they uh, when they have to say goodbye, because guess what? They're not going to end up together. But maybe they could, because she can always go over and see them. It's just the way that he structures everything feels so true to life. You know, there's this great moment in Green Card where. Um, when uh it's, see it, this it's, one but you're, you're selling it, me on it because i'm gonna tell you this moment it. and it's gonna make you want to see this movie so <laughs> at the beginning of the movie you know uh, andy mcdowell who i've heard a lot of people complain about in movies but they're not oh watching the right movies because you that. need to see unstrung hero you need to see unstrung heroes if you want to see what andy mcdowell can do and right. um so her and gerard Depardieu's character you know they get married because he wants a green card she wants to be able to prove she's married. It's the only way she can get this apartment that she wants. It's got this incredible garden because she's a, she's a, uh, I'm trying to think what they call it. She's one of those people who uh, deals with plants and loves plants and everything. Uh, garden scientist. Yeah. And one of the, one of the parts of uh, his story, you know, as they're making up their stories and everything is that he's a composer. And so you, all the way through this movie, you don't know if he's really a composer or if that was just part of his story. And there's this moment about halfway through, and oh, B.B. Newworth is amazing in this movie. And um, halfway, through, <laughs> halfway through this uh, movie, B.B. Newworth's character's mom is having a party and, uh, and Gerard Depardieu and Annie McDowell go there. And, uh, uh, and B.B. Newworth's character's mom plays a piece on the piano and they ask him to play. And it's this amazing scene because right beforehand, uh, B.B. Newworth's mom has got all these plants and they're going to sell the, uh, the apartment. And, uh, and Andy McDowell wants the plants to plant in a park uh, in, in a much needed neighborhood where things are all getting torn, uh, uh, not torn down, but uh, things are falling apart. It's a, it's, it's a lower income uh, neighborhood. And so uh, the woman the, makes it stand out apart from just many other you know well, romantic comedies because it's showing well economics. they give her they give her a real character and real wants and needs and stuff it's it's incredible instead of but, i want the dream man of my dream yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's the thing is she doesn't even want she's got a boyfriend and he's probably good for her but probably not the right one for her. but uh so they go to this the the bb newer's mom's house and she tries to get the us uh, get her to give her the plants and she won't do it and so now they ask uh gerard de produce character to play and he sits down at the uh, piano and you don't know what he's going to do. Is he a composer? Is he a composer? And he just starts banging on the piano, literally bang, 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 <laughs> bang, 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 bang. Like he doesn't know how to play bang. And everybody's looking at it really weird. And the main reason this part of the scene works is because B.B. Newworth's character just finds it really funny and she, she, she portrays it really well. And he stops banging and everybody's disappointed and they're all looking around and like, oh, what's going on here? And then Gerard Depardieu, who's, you know, uh, he's French, um, he asks, I couldn't tell. Yeah, he, he asks uh, Bibi Nuo's mom to translate for him because she also speaks French. And then he just starts playing this really beautiful melody, and he recites this poem that he makes right off the right off the top of his head about plants and children and stuff. Um, and uh, by the end of that by the end of that uh, moment, you're like, oh my god, what is this? They they fooled us by having a bang, and now he's giving us this beautiful poem that's going to get her her trees because it's going to convince the mom. <laughs> 
And it's just this, you don't see these kinds of characters and these kinds of moments in these rom-coms, which usually feel very fake. The emotions feel unreal. And here's the Anyone else would just focus too much on the laughs and have dead space in between the gags. And he's focusing, from what I'm taking away from what you're describing, it's just about the essence. It just feels like a real human moment because at first it's funny and then it's really emotional. And I think Green Card's got a lot of this all it's the way tender. through. Yeah, and so uh, you watch a lot of romantic comedies. I'm not a big fan because they all end the same way. You so And since they all end the same uh, way... Speak for yourself, I do not watch <laughs> a bunch of romantic comedies. <laughs> I, they, all, they all end the same way and yeah, so you know where unbearable. it's gonna go, and so with this movie, it doesn't end that way because uh, things kind of go. Betty wrong. Davis, Judy Garland, any day, but don't give me <laughs> post '90s movies where it's all uh, hell. Don't even give me college comedies. I, yeah, you know, as much as I like Tom Hanks, I'm not gonna recommend uh, you know some of these romantic comedies he did, like Sleepless in Seattle, and yeah, I'm good. It's too predictable, and none of it feels real. It all feels sappy, unreal. Uh, the the scenes really don't. Come hell, together. I even like the screenwriter. I think she's a very cool guy but it's just one of those it's like mm-hmm. see and people have it's one of those movies where people have ruined it by just talking about it too much to where it's like even if i was in a lazy sunday mood i just don't want to watch that right now it's the 90s have ended i want to watch more of well, a fun blockbuster chat I'll be interested to see what you think of Green Card because a lot of people tear it down and we got to remember it was nominated for all sorts I mean, of uh, screenwriting awards. You know, it got an Academy Award nomination for screen screenplay. I because, would get it mixed up with, uh, I think it was French Kiss by Lawrence Kasdan and Kasdan. I didn't like that movie. Okay, well, <laughs> I didn't remember it. So there you go. But I mean, it was kind of that whole wave of movies where it's like someone from another country, you know, hooks up with someone in a different country. Yeah, yeah you know what I mean? And I, I feel like from what you're selling me, you know, Peter Ward is basically, I would say, the more successful he, well, and... What he does is he um, takes stories that other people also do, but he does them better because he adds... He says, "We're I'm going to give you real characters, real people that you can really care about, and they, it's their their internal journeys that are more important. So with well, Green like, Card, there's this really great internal kind of drama and it just feels real and true to life and fearless oh my god it feels everything about the movies that he does you know everything feels very real true to life i can relate to these people i'm not being spooned and fed a bunch of garbage that i've already seen 25 <laughs> times i'm being given the reality you know you, um, you recently described martin Bruss recently do you think he's kind of similar in how he just takes uh, natural martin, moments and i mean I would describe Peter Ware. Martin Bruce hasn't the, made a movie in a while. He's kind of disappeared from I the wish, planet. <laughs> I wonder if he just really hated his last outing and he just said, nope, that's it. But I mean... Um, I, I haven't seen his last outing, but I am a big Martin Bruce. I'm a big Martin Bruce fan. Geely is hysterical. Is it hysterical in a bad way, though? Because I hear bad things about him. Oh, it. yeah. It, uh, I would do a double <laughs> feature of that with The Room. But uh, okay. my, my, my main point, though, is like Peter Ware, I would say, probably is the more commercially feasible for the most part uh, uh Milos Forman. Cause like Milos Forman, you know, so many great movies, man on the moon, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's yeah. nest, Amadeus, yeah. but mm-hmm. studios understood why his movies connected with audiences. And like every five years we're willing to shell out money for him because there's like, Hey, they don't make their money back but there's something about his material everyone wants to collaborate on and hope for the best. There's just, he's a master. 
the best filmmakers, filmmaker. The best filmmakers out there are the filmmakers who can take because every story's been told uh, a million times. Right. You just got to tell it in an original way and you have to be, know how to capture your audience. Milos Foreman knew how to do it. Martin Brest knew how to do it. I haven't seen Chile, but I've liked everything. I think I liked everything that Martin Brest did because I even liked uh, that Brad Pitt movie whose name I'm blanking on right now. Um, uh, of course, Meet Joe Black. Yeah, but of course, going in style and um, which you reviewed Be- recently, yeah, and Beverly Hills Cop, and of course Midnight Express, um, yeah, they redid Going in Style. Uh, it's a good movie, but it's not the original. It doesn't touch. It's on a the totally original. different kind of heist movie. People are going to say, yeah. "Oh, didn't I see that?" I'm like, "I got. I thought it was a seventies movie." Two, if people totally want to know about Going in Style, go to my website under like Ocean's Treasures. I, 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 I did a recommendation <laughs> on it, and I basically started with forget everything you know about Going in Style and, and let it introduce you to just like Ocean's its Eleven. People want to do a compare and contrast with that all the time. It's like yeah. you're talking about well, a totally different Rat Pack movie and a totally different A-lister. I I feel like. I feel like uh, the remake of Going in Style is what people thought they were going to get when the original came out. Because on the poster, it shows the three old men wearing, you know, the funny nose and glasses. You watch the trailer. It looks like it's all about a bank heist. But in reality, the bank heist is over 40 minutes into the movie. And it's just really touching. It's not even really a comedy. It's just really touching human drama about these these people at the end of their life who... It's just it's just an amazing movie. I can't say enough about it. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, the great filmmakers are the ones who know how to give it that twist. That's why when you look at a really great Steven Spielberg film, it's because he took something and he made it personal. That was that's how he did it. He was able to make stuff like ET and Close Encounters. He could have had spaceships flying around shooting each other. Right and stuff when like he does that. giant no, sharks he kept it and dinos, he's doing yeah. the kind of fun movies he loved growing up. But it's like that's different from Saving Private Ryan or uh, Color Purple or again even Empire of the Sun, where he's showing personal. Uh, material that he can uh, convey on screen. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, so backtracking a little bit, I mean, with where, I mean, so I see Dead Pets, Poet Society, Truman Show, Master and Commander, you know, uh, what's funny is I saw it years again later when some cousins were in town and they love epic movies like Gladiator, Lord of the Rings. And of course that has a bit of elements in both. My grandmother loved reading those books and she's like, mm-hmm. they need to make a sequel to that. That is a great, atmosphere mm-hmm. and adventure and everything it's everyone expected like an errol flynn kind of thing is like oh not exactly it's it's not that or pirates of the Caribbean. it is a showing what it's like to live like that at sea at war mm-hmm. and kind of like the horatio hornblower thing is like you're showing how there's a lot of boredom there's a lot of mm-hmm. kind of mouse and then there's times where everyone's just on the deck just eating an apple minding their own business and mm-hmm. a tidal wave takes half them off the deck and so now you're <laughs> yeah and it, there are some moments in master and commander there's that moment where the guy is taken off the uh, is it's is thrown heartbreaking you never see a kid die in a what's supposed to be um a and but the way they do it i mean they they could save him but they they can't because the the ship is going to go down so it's, it's like it's this, one versus it's, many it's, it's not easy to convey there's so many other filmmakers who like like you mentioned before like with green card, how anyone else would have been about the gags and making everyone be lit in a sexy manner is like anyone else who might've done this might've just not given a second thought or been like, Oh, that'll backfire regardless of my actual morals. It's like, 
well, no, there's a way to show the brutal reality back then mm-hmm. and then convey that everyone hates themselves for this. Mm-hmm. But it was likely a reality in that, you know, got to sacrifice one for the many, but it's not religious or political in any way. It's more of a, hey, we could save him, but we've literally used up all our energy and everything. And I believe we, the ship was taken on water, and if they didn't let the because the a sail had fallen into the water and it was dragging uh, dragging the ship down, if they didn't cut that that the wreckage, I think they called it, they, they didn't cut the wreckage loose. Everyone's gonna die. Everyone was gonna die, but in, if they cut the wreckage loose, they were gonna lose this guy. Not easy and, to talk about material now, especially with all the fear mongering and other stuff we've talked about in more controversial movies and real life yeah. incidents. And yeah, they're able to show, hey, this is historical to some aspect, and we're giving we're just giving you an idea of what it would have been like back then. Right. And right. I, I do applaud Ware for again teaming up with Samuel Goldwyn and Fox for this and mm-hmm. co-writing it. And uh, so many people give the ending shit. I'm like, ah. I find that awesome because it wasn't about winning the battle; it was about outsmarting mm-hmm. until. You just call it a draw. It's like, I lost the chess match, but mm-hmm. at least my crew was retained and we healed our doctor who... That, that's another yeah, it, twist there. The doctor gets not it, killed in battle or injured, but just from a stray bullet while they're hunting. Kids yeah. are hunting for sport. and uh, No, they weren't, they weren't hunting. They were watching a bird uh, fly around and then that one guy wanted to shoot the bird. No, that's what it is. Sh- yeah. yeah. It, and this is like... Simple accents. Here's what it would have been like that then. Anyone yeah. else would have wanted to write in, oh, they get in a giant fight on this. Like, that was no. the great thing about the kid's story because the kid wants to be a fighter, you know? And then uh, during the battle, because I guess back then, you know, there were young kids on these ships and uh, he gets hurt and they have to remove the arm. And the way they handle that scene is fantastic too. But then that character throughout becomes friends with Paul Bettany who, and he starts to like draw the animals. He becomes all interested in all the stuff that the doctor's interested in, but he still wants to be a fighter. And, uh, and then some that good co- coverage though, too. The movie it came out the same year as Pirates and I, Final I believe Rings. It, I believe it did pretty well in the it box office. And I know a lot of people who love it. And- it was one of those, I had no idea, you know, at the time it was meant to, you know, start off a franchise, but it was one of those like, regardless of how it outcomes, War kept his eye on the prize, make a hell of a movie that, again, emotionally resonates with you. You feel like they're living, breathing, the, there's good use of the Foley, but it's not to be cool or anything. It's literally to make you feel what it's like being on a ship. Mm-hmm. And I, I just see look- so many movies nowadays and you're like, it's a closed off film set. Right. I don't feel anything. I just looked it up, $211 million worldwide. So mm. it, it did fairly well. It did 93 or 94 million domestically. Um, I think the reason we probably didn't get any sequels to it is when the studios looked at it, because they do this with movies, they think they know what's being made and then they get it. And like, well, what was this? Um, I, I recommended a movie on my site called Duma where that exactly happened. It was produced and, uh, Miramax and, 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 and now they're looking multi-studio right, adventure. They're looking at Master Commander going, man, I was expecting uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. What's this? I don't know yeah. if Pirates of the Caribbean came out first or whatnot, but they were expecting that kind of thing. And uh, can we really do a sequel to this? <laughs> this is more of a movie you don't do sequels to. But I think if they had done a sequel, it would have done really. It can all be enjoyed, guys. But yeah, it, it's it's kind of like that same year. I mean, Charlize Theron, I was quoted as saying like she was on Howard Stern talking about 
uh, one guy funded her breakout movie, uh, Monster, just because involves two women kissing but he didn't know the context you know it's about serial mm-hmm. killers and uh, true crime and it's like some people literally are that fucking stupid they will just throw money at something just because well, they like the sound of it and it's like you want some of that so you can use that to your advantage because there's because like there's going to be plenty of people who like say watch a giant epic and they like it in a mindless way and there's others who legit love it from everything from the scenery to the editing to the camera work and it's just like it, it is amazing how it's like sometimes you can't even get the idiots to shell out money for you because they're just too goddamn stubborn they really well, did not know what they signed up for the studios don't seem to understand that audiences aren't stupid and oh, everyone's that's not true mark we gotta have exposition and <laughs> and if they let the if end. they treated the audience smarter they would find more people watching the movies stop putting that in sex and violence that doesn't need to doesn't be belong um and i and i, I have nothing against I, I don't need it in every movie to make it good necessarily you know I, mean? I got nothing against sex and violence in movies but i do feel like both should be there because they belong there adrian line is one of my favorite directors and he uses sex a lot but that's because he that's what he's exploring and you've got to have it there in order to explore the themes that he's exploring david cronenberg's another one of my favorite directors and he's violent the b movie atmosphere and he wanted to actually make ones that had a psychological yeah but the fly wouldn't be as powerful if if it wasn't Anyone As else would have focused on the graphic. effects or the yeah. actors getting along. But I mean, they, if you remember, I hear I'm going to spoil the fly for people, but it's it's 1980 <laughs> something. Uh, but at the end of the movie, you know, uh, one of the most powerful endings of any movie ever, Gina Davis has got the gun on him, but she can't pull it, so she pulls the gun away. And so the fly puts the gun back to his head and so she can pull the trigger. You have to see that fly. You have to see how grotesque he is because this is how badly What's this cancer has taken him. Inside. him. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like a symbol for cancer or AIDS. And everyone's uncomfortable all doing that nowadays. Nowadays, everyone's like, oh, shy away from the cancer. It's like, no, no, I got to feel the pain the scientist is going through. Otherwise, mm-hmm regardless of whether I can relate to them or not, well, if I don't understand them, then this movie's a cheat and an excuse for effects. Not This is how brilliant the love story of The Fly is. It's about how bad it can get, but yet we still loved, love our loved ones, no matter how sick they get. They make him look so grotesque and everything. There's that scene where she hugs him that everybody was grossed out at that time uh, when that came out. But that's how much she loves him. And if he just the had right a people, bare no. minimum of makeup on, then that wouldn't be as powerful a scene. No, that would have been okay. And when does he take his makeup off? You know, it's just yeah. It's it's it. Sometimes when it's needed, but nowadays is studios just put it in to put it in, and nothing, nothing, you know, should be put into a movie just to put it in. It should be there because what it belongs. Are you about? And I feel sometimes I think it's insulting when you put something like you'll put a a gay character in a movie just because you want to have a diversity in your movie. I know many I think that's a, gay pals who get offended by that too because there's like it's what insulting. Is it? Give them something to do. Put them in that movie and tell party. tell their story. You'll see a political party in the movie, but half the time, like, well, why 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 do I need to know where their position is? 
Yeah, is the isn't thing it is about is, showing their essence of being a politician. If you want to, if what? you want to use anything like that in a movie, that's fine as long as you've got a reason. That's why Backstory. Moonlight. <laughs> Moonlight is a fantastic film. It's not an exploitation movie. It's a very it's about something storytelling. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic, and uh, you know, but I think the same thing. If people are going to get on my case now, I'll say it's the same thing with heterosexuality. There's no reason to have that, you know that any okay, kind of sex in women, there unless it's so needed. What? You know, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't really matter. You don't do something just to do it. You do it because it's right and you got a story to tell. And um, Sometimes and they so. will hint at someone and they're just showing how they're shady or they're abusing someone's privileges or they're a thief mm -hmm. uh, who's used sex. But, uh, so, and again, the right people will get certain clues and then there's other times where it's just like, okay, but sometimes it can be poorly thought out much like, say, right. Uh, like I'm the main culprit yep. behind this heist all this time, and Ware's been good at, hey, you know, what 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 does the character want to go? And you know what? Literally within first ten minutes, like Dead Poet Society, it's mm -hmm. a you know private prep school, and you know, mm -hmm. the two characters. You know, this is what I already knew Robert Sean Leonard because House had just come out, but it's like, man, this is what got him on the map. This got mm -hmm. Ethan Hawke on the map after a few other fun mindless kids movies is like, but you're seeing them in this and you know, instantly is like Ethan Hawke is kind of socially uncomfortable, but coming out of his shell, thanks to the professor mm -hmm. and Sean Leonard, you know, has awful parents who are meaning well, but just never ask what he wants. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a perfect predicament. Anyone else would elongate and it or have the parents overact or they would have made it Robin Williams's movie and the kids. Would oh have yeah. Or let Robin carry the movie and not give him any and, guidance. Yeah. <laughs> and the weird thing is, is it's not Robin Williams's movie. He's not even the main character in the film. That's the reason that people went to see it, but no one was ready for I've, it. I've written in, I've read in numerous places that Robin Williams said that, uh, Peter Weir was the director that he liked working with the most and learned the most from. And here's the guy who said, Hey, you're the star, but guess what? You're really kind of, you're, you're here to serve their story. Right. You know, and that's why that scene where they get up on those desks is so powerful. It's not because of how Robin Williams is reacting to it, but that's how, how much his character meant to them. You know, that and that's whole moment. Great because you can't say that about today's world where everything's just political about what, and it's relevant. It's very annoying when you find so many people are like, I went to college, but man, my professors were dicks. You know, you, yeah, you see too much of that. You don't see enough of the teachers is like, because there are good teachers out mm -hmm. there. I have at least three of them who, if I saw in, in a minute, I would give a giant ass hug to. I'm like, you I... are my hero growing up. Yeah, no, I had some really great teachers. But not um, everyone I, has that. No, I went to three different schools, and all three had I had really great teachers. Um, I had uh, one teacher. I was going to make a short film. I, I have a film degree, so um, oh, nice. So do I. <laughs> yeah, I was going to. I graduated Columbia College in Chicago, where uh, Janusz Kaminski uh, graduated, um, as well no as shit. yeah, and um, I love Kimberly. Kimberly Pierce, I think, graduate. A lot of people. It's a really good school. Oh, I recommend man. it. If only um, you could have worked on Boys Don't Cry, my dude. That, that would have been amazing. I had a teacher there, and I was going to make a short film, and I told her, or I told him, oh, God, I can't remember his name, uh, but I told him what it was going to be, and he's like, yeah, so. And I'm like, well, no, I'm going to do this. I'm telling him. He's like, 
I don't under, I, I, I don't I don't understand why you want to make this movie. It just doesn't say it just sounds like you're going to make a movie. And so then I started telling him it would have been my third time moving away from home and how it's really difficult to do that, especially my move to Chicago. When I moved to New York, I was amongst a lot of people who were moving away from home because it was freshman year of college. When I moved from New York to Arizona, a move I did not want to make, you know, uh, I was literally being torn away from my girlfriend at the time, who uh, is now my wife. But there was five years between the two. Glad it paid off. Because I, uh, yeah, well, we came back together many years later. But so I didn't want to be in Arizona and had that kind of feeling. And uh, then, uh, then I moved to Chicago where I didn't know anybody. And I found that I would hold on to my friends so badly at home that I wouldn't make any friends where I was moving to. And I was telling my film teacher that I was like, "Why are you not making that into a movie?" Right. right. That and, and I did. I did. I called it holding on and letting go. And uh, I made it into a, a six minute film and uh, everybody loved it. Um, I'm sure if I looked at it now, I'd find all the problems with it. But uh, it was a silent black and white. And that teacher, he taught me. So now basically everything that I've worked on since has been very, very Per, has had a personal angle. Even the werewolf movie I tried to make was all about very personal things. And I just did a zombie movie, which I'm sending out to film festivals. It's a short. And it's very, very, it's zombie apocalypse from the zombies point of view. So you get to care about the zombies and understand the zombies. And uh, it had a lot to do with uh, how I feel about animals and how, um, you know, animals are treated. Coyotes here in California, you know, are treated like they're the devil because they uh, ate somebody's cat. And it's like, you moved into his territory. He's just trying to survive. He's not doing anything wrong. Exactly. He's doing what animals do. And so we did that with the zombie movie. And so I wrote a, I wrote a, uh, we were talking about Master Commander. I wrote a medieval kind of swashbuckler uh, type story, uh, Errol Flynn-esque. Um, and uh, it came from an experience I had with a very, very famous person when I was working at uh, a movie theater. And she just came to kind of came in thinking she was better than everybody else. And so I, when know, I always wrote... get those snubs and it's <laughs> just... Yes. And so when I wrote the script, it was all, it wasn't me making fun of that kind of person. Cause I feel like that person actually believes. They read into it they, too much. They, they believe their own hype. And so my character, even though it was a medieval period piece with sword fighting and everything, it had characters that explored that. So I had one character who was very much that kind of person. Then the brother who was the main character was grown up, grew up around that, but didn't understand it. And when he's forced to live amongst the commoner, he learns, wait a minute, what's wait wrong with just being the, what's just, what's being a regular person? What do we mean? We're, cause we're royalty. We're better. We're not. These are no. people too. And, and so I took that experience that I just didn't understand. And, and so I learned from that teacher, um, you know, don't just tell a story, tell a story that's got real personal involvement for you, you know, um, you and don't be, know. yeah, and don't be scared to, you know, really, op you got to open up uh, your heart to people and let them know that, that side of you. Uh, in the werewolf movie, the two main characters are basically me and my wife. So, um, and, and, and a situation we went through when times were kind of hard, you know, and I was working two jobs. We didn't have enough time for each other and how it affected us and everything. And I put that into this, this script, which maybe one day. I'm glad made. that inspired you though, to 
but that came from this teacher. I would have never thought to put some personal. I would have just thought like I'm gonna try and find the personal in the character, not realizing no, you put your well, personal into that character. You see people who want to. I don't know. They they follow around other morons on in school, like the you know the class uh -huh. bully or the class clown, and it's mm -hmm. like and teachers are just known for often being either strict or being really good at educating but it's so often people forget about hey did you actually learn something in that class did you actually love going to school you know yeah there's, I there's a difference you can love it you might not I think like that, working at all ever i think the better your teachers are the more you love it and i think that's the importance of something like dead post side i wish more teachers were like the robin williams teacher because if you make school boring and dull then nobody's going to learn anything and they're not going to want to pursue anything. Whereas if you can really allow them to find that part of themselves, which is what the dead poet society was, um, you know, it was that group of kids going up there and finding that part of themselves. I feel like if you made a teacher, you could do that. that either. Yeah. No, they don't. And I, I had many, many great teachers that were, were like that. I had some at my first school. I had uh, a couple at my second school, but uh, I went to three. I went to three schools thanks to my parents. But uh, graduated uh, with the film degree, and I had another teacher there who taught me the importance of uh, aspect ratios. By uh, you know, to, I, he was showing Blade Runner, and uh, after class, and I told him I didn't want to watch it because I hated Blade Runner because I just <laughs> did not like Blade Runner. And he's like, have you ever seen it Letterbox? I'm like, what difference could that possibly make? Because I'd only seen the pan and scan version and I'd seen it like three times. He's like, you've never seen the Letterbox version of this? I'm like, no, but what difference could that make? It's all story, right? He's like, you gotta sit and watch this. And I went Some in and I watched about it. experiences. So he opens <laughs> yeah, well, that yeah. volume up for you. And you're like, there's yeah. more. I so went in and I watched it and it blew me away. I'm like, what am I missing here? And then from that point forward, uh, like uh, two years later, um, after I moved to California, got a laser player, got to watch Jaws and its proper aspect ratio for the first time and realized that that scene where they're talking uh, where uh, Robert Shaw is telling that story. It's not like 15 shots. It's only like three. It's just they were cutting from one side of the scene shot to the other um, because it wouldn't fit on the, the TV screen the whole way because of the panning and scanning. I would and, always get awkward by that, especially watching movies like Ghostbusters going, I'm like, that looks like that transition, that tracking shot looked yeah. awkward. Oh, because well, how they fitted it. Initially. For the younger people who don't know, because everything's kind of shown in its aspect ratio now, televisions used to be more square. And so, and yeah. people didn't like the black bars on the top and the bottom. So, so you would only be looking at the left hand side of the Which screen. So and then funny. you'd be looking at the right hand side. Then they'd cut to the left. You put and it in I full screen. Sometimes you see more <laughs> detail unnecessarily of certain things. <laughs> yeah. And so when I was watching, it's a totally different scene. Uh, in Jaws because it's paced differently because now you're <laughs> two people on the screen at the same time or whatever, you know, and that makes everything different. And, uh, you know, and I learned this stuff from teachers. If, if teachers make it fun, then, uh, then people give you a narrative. Learn. Just yeah, like the and, filmmakers we admire. And, and I feel like, you know, the character, Robin Williams' character in Dead Poets Society, trying to get it back to be aware. Um, I think that <laughs> he, he kind of do, does that because he he challenges them. One of the, one of the greatest scenes. And we, in the Dead audience Poets. feel challenged because we're not sure where this is going to lead. We're already not used to seeing these actors in yeah. these kinds of roles. So that makes us open up. And like you say, the movie, 
doesn't have the kind of sappy music. It doesn't have any elongated shots of the colleges. It's it's got that great moment where, uh, where Robin Williams pulls that poem out of Ethan Hawke. Great establishing shots, close-ups. Anyone else would have been too much about not done enough staging or just let there be no breakaways or not as motivated. And he's really good at making you feel like you're in the classroom with these guys. Yeah, well, but he's also key. Number one is he really good at allowing you to feel like you know these people, like they're not just caricatures. Even even uh, Jim Carrey in The Truman Show, who is basically a fake character because he's brought up to be a fake character. So as real as he is, he's still a fake character. Yeah, the original because... guy to Helmet was Brian De Palma, and I couldn't imagine. I think De Palma would have been too uh, much about... Yeah, it would have been a Hitchcock movie or something. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a Virtigo tribute. And he's like, no, no, no. The, this this was... movie deserved... Because, I mean, he'd already done The Cable Guy, which most people don't realize is also a satire on junk food and too much... And it's a better Happy movie than cinema. people give credit for. Yeah, and so I think this is like the perfect. I would love to even do a double feature one day, like the Cable Guy and uh, uh, Jim Carrey's uh, reality yeah. TV double feature is like because yeah, it is like this movie. Also, all these movies where owns because, like you say, he approached it personally. He made it personal to audiences, and he thought so hard about all of it. He didn't just say, let's be cute with the camera and actors. It goes back to when I first fell in love with vision, with witness. Here's a movie that another director would have taken and they would have just gone this way with it. I mean, we had many movies like You're Living Dangerous. I want to make a there. movie like I saw on Antenna Channels. Okay, well, yeah. that's great, but that's not what this material merits. But you know, he, he took it, he, he gives it personality, gives it meaning, and even something as simple as that scene where the, where the bullies are um, going out or making fun of the Amish, he doesn't only give you a great yes yeah moment when Harrison Ford lays off but the scene is you couldn't take that scene out of the movie because the bullies, it's part they of, feel like real people not stereotypes like from a karate kid type knockoff is like you're actually seeing them be like oh I yeah. thought I was welcome although their clothes don't behave. date very their clothes don't date very well um but uh but I mean that's a moment that you couldn't take out of the movie because it's the moment where you're thinking you know because right before that he you know he goes into the house he looks at her she's bathing and uh, he says to her the Thank next you, morning he says to her the next morning uh, if we had made love I'd have to stay or you'd have to go so the feelings are really building because he feels like if they had had sex they would be together forever and one of them would have to make that ultimate sacrifice which would just probably make their lives miserable but they're at the point now where that's the would, feelings they it's have too much for a movie that has to end in literally 90 minutes too so right it's like... <laughs> but i mean it, it really kind of says hey you know we're really having these strong feelings which is so strong that if we had taken that next step that's it we're it is we're, very we're bound together we're and... bound together and then you go to the next scene um and you realize oh that would be a big mistake because he couldn't live in her world and just like we know they would have rejected him anyway he would have been laughed away by even his former cop buddies who would have been like what are you doing so it is an interesting like you say identity test right but that seems about how inside their heads 
they wouldn't be able to make it work. The kid he is w- having to live in so many different dangerous <laughs> livings, and you really get a good sense of him, even though he barely. The kid would turn into Charles life. Bronson. Are you kidding me? Right. <laughs> he would have been. He would have been Harrison Ford Jr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, um, I wanted to do one movie we haven't mentioned yet that I think people <clears throat> should uh, search out and check check out. What it did we missed? T- it was a TV movie that he did called The Plumber. Oh shit! That's right. How did I? Yeah. Um, that I think is I a, actually saw that. Did I see that on TC? I think I saw that. But let me see. Let me check. Uh, it might have been cut up if you saw on TCM because there's some nudity and everything in it. Although it says TV movie, so I think it had um, a TVMA thing. So, but who knows? I, I mean, I think you can watch it on the Criterion Channel. In which case, it'll probably. I be, think that I think I saw the Criterion logo at the beginning. So, um, but that's actually a really good movie as well. That's got a really great moment. Yeah, with I have the, seen uh, the plumber. Yeah. Uh, and uh, people should check that out. Um, that was yeah, a movie I did not regret watching because it wasn't, again, much like the cards that ate Paris, you know, is like you're getting such a sense of, again, just how this is anything but easy to discern. You know, it, there's so many layers to it. And then at the same time, it's not, it's not one that makes me say, hey, you know, it's all cut straightforward and easygoing, but at the same time, it's also, I love the experimentation of it. Mm-hmm. It, it well, welcomes you along for the ride, even though, like you say, it might leave some people cold, too cold it, for even a psycho thriller. It also opens up your uh, mind to, or it, it opens you up to, you know, a talented director's early work. And you just, sometimes you have to go into the early work uh, understanding. Uh, I think the cars at Paris might've suffered from uh, budget because I've worked on stuff. Independent people will come to me with their short film or whatever, and uh, there'll be scenes missing because they didn't have time or money to shoot it. And then you got to have the imagination to rewrite or redub. And you got to, you got to figure out how to make it work. And I think that he does that with the Cars A Paris. If there's one weak link, it's the characters of the teens. I wish that there was more character characterization there. But it didn't so, feel like an exploitation movie. That's the other crazy yeah, thing. Because you go into no. this, you're like, okay, this is a video nasty. No, nope, not not even remotely. <laughs> no, and, and and but you also get to see some of the real smarts of Peter Weir because there are certain things that happen. You know, I'll listen to podcasts and they're talking about it. And I didn't get this. It's like it was right there. He just didn't handle hand it to you on a silver plate if you're still with me <laughs> you know? i think you'll get it but if i gotta yeah. talk down to you then that betrays there, me as a filmmaker because i'm not that kind of filmmaker. there's a moment because uh so basically a guy is in a car accident in this town uh his brother dies in the car accident and um and you'd find out that the the town has been setting up these car accidents and they live off the parts and stuff um trade they use it for trade and stuff like that and there are some survivors so now you go into the mayor's house and you find out that the mayor um and his wife couldn't have kids, but yet they have kids. And one of the girls, she wipes her the hair away from her ear, and you see a scar. They don't come right out and say this was a vic- this was one of the people whose parents probably died in the car accident that they've taken on. They just show you the scar, and he lets you figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. and that's and that's a really great filmmaker because he doesn't call you stupid. Witness, there's this great scene in Witness where you know. Uh, 
little Samuel Lapp is in the police station and he he's there with Harrison Ford and they're going through uh, the books to see, uh, what do you call them, uh, where you can see all the, the faces. Oh my God, I'm blanking. I feel like an idiot. Um, you know, and he's, I know I don't recognize anybody. No, no, I don't recognize anybody. Um, and uh, so Harrison Ford gets a phone call and the kid just walks <laughs> around the, starts walking around the uh, police station and he stops at this, uh, at this case and he looks in there and there's a picture of uh, Danny Glover as a police officer who's exactly. getting an award. And Harrison, he looks over to Harrison Ford who sees something's up. So he walks over and, uh, and little Lucas Haas who plays Samuel points to the picture. And then Harrison Ford, all he does is he just bends the finger down and you know everything. Not a word has been spoken. Samuel didn't have yeah. to say, uh, that's the guy that I've been uh, talking about. Harrison Ford didn't have to ask him, is that the guy? No, it's all said right there. Just music and silence. And you get it. And that's a smart filmmaker. And The title today, is Witness, if that helps. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... Um, you know, I'm surprised Lucas Haas didn't go on and do some better stuff, but... Uh, oh, he, he has. He, he was in Inception. He's done a lot of guest spots, and uh, I, 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 he was he works with Gus Van Zandt quite a lot. Oh, does he? Yeah. I'm trying to think. But that's just it. I think he was one of those... I hate to compare him to Ricky Schroeder, but I think he was just one of those other just kid actors who just... I'd even compare him probably to Will Whedon. He knew... Although Will Whedon's a whole different thing because he had just terrible parents who mm-hmm. were his managers, but he he was able to just kind of just I, I compare them because basically uh, they they weren't worried about they they got it right then and there you know not every movie is going to be success not every movie is going to take off what what is going to what I got to worry about is where I am in every scene and if it doesn't happen that's fine there's so many degrees you can be a movie actor you can be a tv actor and i think he was just one of those like hey I, i've done all these movies with you know walter hill and everybody else i can i can go about however i want it instead of you know try to be a shirley temple 80s you know male equivalent you know <laughs> right everything yeah well we lose a lot of really great kid actors because their parents don't really know how to they just want the money they don't really know how to they don't you know make it work. people yeah. yeah, and they should they they should consider them uh, differently because they you know when you get somebody who can get through it properly, you get a Jodie Foster, you know. Yeah. Um, now I'm thinking right now Lucas Haas uh, he had did a mo- done a movie one of these days I got to rewatch it maybe I'll even recommend it on my site uh, called uh, The Lady in White with Catherine Hellman. And it's a oh, ghost story. Um, and I believe the last version I saw, there's a director's cut out there. Um, and I love Catherine Hillman as a uh, television actress. She was on soap and she was amazing. Um, and she was also on coach for a number of years, but, uh, <laughs> but it's just this very simple ghost story kind of thing. I don't like it when I see kid actors really blow it out of the park. And then their very next thing is something that's so obvious that they just took Chloe Grace Moritz, I think is a good example of someone who can, and just bring it you know yeah yeah uh, i'm not i'm not a big fan. fan i like i like some of her stuff and then some of the stuff i'm questionable on she did this one oh, i hate a lot of her movies but i i'm just saying just the actors you know it's like she's pretty mature yeah yeah well and then i think that if uh if the parents would let them 
more kid actors kind of, you know, really break through, they would have uh, larger careers. What's her name? Uh, who was in uh, Dakota Monster. Fanning. She was in Casper. Um, oh, Christina Ritchie. Christina Ritchie. Uh, she was very smart with uh, with her career because um, she was known as the the kid in, in all the kid movies and all that. But then she went and did Buffalo 66, which was a movie that I didn't necessarily like, but really showed a totally different side of her. She also did Opposite of Sex. She didn't just start doing, um, a, you know, let herself be remembered for the kid role. She said, I'm going to go show you guys that I can challenge myself. She was in Monster. She was, and now she, she's got a career that's been lasting her a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jodie Foster too. You know, it's it's strange to think of how far Jodie Foster's gone, considering she was in two movies opposite Scott Baio um, when she was a kid. Um, Both movies, I don't remember much about Foxes, but I remember liking it. But uh, Bugsy Malone is fantastic. (laughs) We'll have to rewatch it. (laughs) It's a musical with kids, Uh, musical gangster movie with kids, and everything's kid oriented. Literally, like when they shoot their guns, they shoot pies. They don't shoot bullets. Or when they're driving around in cars, they got pedal cars. (laughs) And it's a musical, and it's by Alan Parker's first film. And Alan Parker's another one of my favorite directors. Um, And uh, it's just just fantastic. So so back 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 to it. uh, So many great guys who I definitely will have to have you back. (laughs) in disgust because yeah. i'm with you they're they're fantastic and well i'm hoping i'm coming off okay <laughs> i think everyone's got the message is like this guy is the rare uh you know a mixture he, of important stories with again may based on character gimmicks instead the, of worrying about the style yeah. and how it looks and everything that all comes in later and but, making but, his money back and having unrecognized launching yeah. both roles for think actors and having established people in unrecognizable roles that think about think about it this way how many actors and directors do you see that make movies where it's obviously it's so obvious they made it just for the money oh, you know <laughs> yeah and one of the reasons i tell one of the reasons tom cruise is one of my favorite actors is because you can't, with the exception of maybe like Cocktail and losing it early in his career when he had to go after the money because he was just starting his career, you can't name a movie of his that feels like a he did it for the money kind of movie. Even the bad ones, the ones that didn't work, it I looks mean, like they tried to make the best Mission Impossible, possible. clearly, but if you it's watch, about money, but he likes it because he gets if, to be in control of it, his character, you, where he goes. It's a physical if, assertion you, test. But if you watch those movies, not a single one of them, with the exception of maybe the the second one, uh, none of them feel like, hey, we did this just to make the money. No, they they do truly feel like we got really good stories. We got really good this. We they feel like so, they're all solid movies. You he know, really believes in the character. You know, is like yeah, no one else played this character. He was a character created for the movie right. based off it's, a pre-established show and. Well, I think that's just it. We get so, so many people, they're ready to get into a giant franchise, but they don't know how to take this. So I look at his his choices of movies, and Christian Bale might be another one that, that that's Dynamite actor. looking for this. Yeah. Uh, you look at their movies, and it's you never feel like, oh, they did that just for the money. Oh, they did that just for the money. They believed in I f- it. <laughs> I feel like Peter Weir is a director like that. I can't think of one of these movies that feels like a money movie. The closest would probably be witnessed because I've had the commercial feel of, you know, how you can pitch it. 
But then deep down, it's not because he and then went in and told the just, Amish story. Oh yeah, and I'm sure Dead Poet Society and Green Card started out as just simple run-of-the-mill, you know, movies because they're by Disney. But I'm sure, you know, once he but came they don't aboard, feel like don't feel like money movies. Yeah, when well, you're once he came them. aboard, I'm sure he scrapped it out and said, "We're starting from scratch, guys. We are not right. making what you think you're seeing. We'll make enough so that when it comes time to make the trailer, people are going to see it anyway." But but that's the that's the importance, though, is when you watch these movies, and I feel this missing from a lot of filmmakers of today. I think we got a couple that are that are not this. Like I really like David Lowry a lot, and um, but uh, a lot of times it just feels like they're just making the movie to make the movie. Whereas Peter Weir and, and, and a lot of Spielberg stuff and Alan Parker and people like that, it's especially from, almost especially any- from. But Indie especially from this, if you look at the filmmakers from the 70s and the 80s, um, their movies just feel like these are people who are really passionate about these movies and they really want to tell these stories. They had yes, one shot and they were going to treat each one like it's the last check they'll ever get. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't feel that way when I go to the movies a lot. Every now. other indie filmmaker, you know, even if it's a good person I like, there's sometimes signs that there's been a dispute behind the scenes and we'll only find out maybe five years down the road, hey, you know, someone came yeah. in and reshot the movie. But uh, I, every indie filmmaker who's gone on to do like a horror movie for like Blumhouse or a Marvel movie mm-hmm. doesn't ever feel at all like they did anything except maybe called a few shots and the rest was the Disney guys come in and shoot the rest yeah. of the movie with the stunt guys. Yeah, it's, I don't know. You, you can look at people like Wes Anderson and people like that and think to yourselves, well, there are people like that out there that are, that are really uh, trying to do real quality stuff. But the stuff that's really being put in front of us feels very generic at times and i mean there are a couple of filmmakers that i that are new that i really like and and like i like jordan peele i didn't like us and i didn't didn't necessarily like uh get out but i see so much potential in him it's crazy that i think that when he nails it it's going to be amazing he's going to give us an amazing movie the same thing same thing with ryan country and his version of the twilight zone i think you'll take someone away from those yeah, I, I, I feel like uh, Ryan Coogler's another one of those. David Coogler, Lowry, who yeah. gave us uh, The Amazing Pete's Dragon, but also last year, was it last year? Or was it year? I think it was last year, did uh, The Green Knight, um, uh, Old Man and Gun. I'd like to see Ben Affleck direct a little bit more. He's given us some pretty good stuff. I think he keep he will, especially if you've seen his latest crime movies. But um, yeah, Lowry, I was kind of mixed on it. I really liked The Old Man and the Gun, but I didn't really care for the Disney movies, but I understood why they kind of... You didn't, like Pete's Dra- you didn't like Pete's Dragon? I couldn't. I can't get into anything Disney related now. <laughs> See, but that's, that, that's the thing about Pete's Dragon is uh, I went and saw that because somebody asked me to review it for their website, and I didn't want to see it. I said, like, first of all, Pete's Dragon, really? You're going to reboot Pete's Dragon? Um, but... <laughs> I, I did. I've not liked any of the reboots that Disney's done, with the exception of Cinderella. I thought they did some interesting stuff with the evil stepmother. Uh, I, thought I don't were, remember it, but I did see it and find it but, a good but, lead in that one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I thought that was interesting. But the only only reboot that I've loved 
has been Pete's Dragon because it didn't feel like a reboot. It felt like a filmmaker making a really good movie. It didn't even feel like a Disney movie. It just felt like a good movie. I kind of had fun with Maleficent, but I can understand people not liking that one. Oh, I hated that one. <laughs> That's all good. You, you can't tell me that you, you don't like Pete's Dragon, you like Maleficent, and this conversation continues. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, um, shit. No, but anyway. he, did, he did a movie called Ghost Story 2, which is really good, and... Uh, and so, so there are the filmmakers out there. I just, I think that if you look at filmmakers from like 70s and 80s, like Peter Weir, I, I wish he would make another movie because these are filmmakers who really care about what That is what's doing. weird is like that last one underperformed, but just about everyone I know who's seen it, even people who aren't into hard to watch subject matter really dug it. So I was like, did he just say, hey, you know, I've lived a good life. I don't, yeah, I, I don't have to do any more movies or. What? He or maybe he's he's, part of the national like registry of Australia or something like that for film. Well, yeah, well, he was one of the first because there they weren't re- there wasn't really a film industry when he started. IMDb has a projects in development called The Keep. Hmm. So, but he's also getting up there in age. Uh, according to IMDb, he was born when in forty four. So he would that be. May- 54, 64, 74, 84, 104, 114. So he's almost 80 years old. Ooh, yeah. Um, but uh, but I'd like to see something else from him. At least and, one more. Just one more before just saying, you know, death yeah, takes you or, you know. I feel like I, I like The Way Back. I'd like to see him end on, I'd like him to see him end on an Academy Award wi- winner. Because You're right, Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, he's been nominated too many times. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I liked, I liked The Way Back. I think it's great. I think it's got really great performances and uh, it's a really great story. And it's a story we've seen before, but they add certain elements to it. They did it so I, differently. It well, like... the, the way they added the, uh, I can never pronounce her name. So I'm looking at Sarah Sarah Ronan. Ronan so yeah. The way they added her character in, because, you know, they gave her this relationship with the Ed Harris character. And at first he doesn't even want her there. You know, yeah. he wants to leave her behind. And then this relationship just builds and it and it doesn't feel fake. It just totally feels genuine. There's a part where it's like Master Commander, act- we're seeing hardship in yeah. a time of when no one can get their shit together. Right. Well, I mean, there's this moment where uh, where she tells him the story of, you know, why she's wandering around and following them uh, and why she's run away. Um and uh, you're like, oh, that's so sad. And then Harris is like, yeah, that's not true. Yeah, Don't lie to me so again. Suspicious. And it's fantastic because then when the truth comes out, it's more emotional. You know? So, means. so yeah, it's, it's he's A lot of stuff for more people to seek out and check out. This has been great having you on the show, my dude. I have to get onto a, one more meeting before I go downstairs and okay. go to a That's party. That's fine. But Thank you ever we... so much for being on here. Let, uh, so what, what is your podcast, Underexposed? Okay. Uh, well, I don't have a podcast yet. I've done a couple of recordings that will hopefully become a podcast, but I have a website called underexposed cinematic treasures i know it's long but that's what it is and basically i got really tired of seeing all the people putting hate on movies uh out there on the internet so i decided i want to do a movie that put love on movies you know and showed people you know movies that they can love but then i realized that there were you know 
what's the point of me writing articles on stuff like Godfather and Apocalypse Now? People already know they need to see those movies. So I decided, why don't I introduce them to movies that I know they're going to love that maybe they haven't seen or haven't heard of, or they've heard of and thought was going to be bad, but is actually really good. A and second so, take, but done with actual indulgence instead of yeah. just well, I saw it randomly one day on Netflix. It's not that bad. It's like, no, there's a whole context. I've grown yeah. up loving this. It's time yeah, to so get a voice. <laughs> it's called Underexposed Cinematic Treasures, and it's everything from very commercial movies. Like I have a thriller on there called Threads. Um, I put Kubo and the Two Strings up there, which everybody's heard of, but nobody saw. Right. Um, to a movie called... Uh, um, to a movie, I'm sorry, the first movie, the thriller, is called Triangle, um, but it's a typical kind of thriller, but it's really good. And then, uh, and then of course, but then I also put a movie up there called Threads by uh, uh, about nuclear war that is one of the scariest movies you'll ever see. And mm-hmm. everybody knows a day after, but they don't know Threads. Um, and movies. so, so, and so also uh, movies of all kinds. It's not just going to be art house movies. It's, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll put up a movie that should have been a commercial success. It's like so commercial, but yet nobody saw it. You're and, just and as likely to even do an indie film that you know, played at a festival one day and then went straight to blockbuster shelves and stars. Yeah, there's like, only one, there's really only one kind of movie that you might not find on there unless, and I'll ask people this, and that's documentaries because I don't really watch documentaries, but I do have a, a page call, uh, for the fans called Fan Recommendation. So anybody who wants to give their own recommendation, just email me or use my contact. Uh, you can email me at info at uh, com or use the contact page. Send me a four-line uh, review of a movie that you think is underseen uh, that you want more people to see. And I'll Fucking put that perfect. up. And if, you, if it's a documentary, all the better because I don't really watch them. So This has been a delight. Thank you, my right. dude. We'll return after these messages. Do you ever find yourself thinking about who would win in a fight between Goku and Superman? Hi, I'm James Gavsey, and on the Who Would Win show, me and my co-host Ray ignore anything important happening in the outside world and debate fictional battles between characters from comics, movies, and video games. We got a new show every week, and almost always am I the winner. (laughs) Yeah, not true, Ray. In the past, we've discussed such matches as... Captain America versus Darth Vader, Solid Snake versus the Iron Giant, classic matchups like RoboCop versus Terminator, and even the Muppets versus Sesame Street. That one was crazy. So if you're a fan of geek culture and love a spirited debate, check out the Who Would Win Show wherever you get your podcasts, or check us out at whowouldwinshow.com. We let things pile up in the DVR, we add them to our queues, we wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays, we time shift. The Time Shifters podcast, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. Cool thing about Blind Knowledge is we are in multiple countries. We are worldwide all across the globe. We are in the U.S., we are in the U.K., we are in Canada, Germany, India, Japan. We're in Australia, y'all. BlindKnowledge.com. Now back to the feature presentation. Follow us on the web on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
The podcast is available on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Anchor, Apple, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Feel free to review our show and leave comments on any of those sites. Thanks a million for listening. It's a jacked up review show.